0: Sure, it has its ups and downs, and keeping everybody, you know, pulling on the oars together is, you know, that's always a challenge. But uh, you look at what this place could be and what the future might hold, and, and that's the exciting part.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to the 457SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about Southeastern Ohio. I'm Atish Baidia.
2: I'm Susan Tevin.
1: I'm Aaron Payne.
2: And I'm Allison Hunter. WUB arts and culture reporter Emily Votaw will join us a little later in the episode to talk about a local poet on the rise and a lawyer who's a musician and he's got his own thing going and he doesn't care what you say and, uh, and Atish's new favorite band. But first, we'll look at the impact nuclear power has had on our region and then how some are looking to use that past to fuel economic development in one part of the 457-SEO.
3: Coal and natural gas may dominate the Ohio Valley's energy, but the region also has a long history with nuclear power. Ohio Valley resource reporter Nicole Irwin reports that some Kentucky officials hope a new law might help the struggling industry get back some of its old glow.
4: Paducah, Kentucky sits across the Ohio River from Honeywell, the nation's only uranium conversion plant. It is also home to USEC, a uranium enrichment facility the Department of Energy operated for 50 years, until being decommissioned in 2013. Former State Senator Bob Lieber thought it made sense to build on that existing capacity. So he introduced a bill to end the state's decades-old moratorium on nuclear power. That was 10 years ago. It's
0: very difficult to struggle to get something like that through based on some unfortunate prejudices, if you will. It was
4: up to his successor, Senator Danny Carroll, to push the LEAPER Act over the finish line. Today, the energy marketplace is dramatically different, with cheap natural gas and clean renewable sources attracting more investment but Carol says he's not giving up on nuclear's prospects.
0: We may be able to attract some type of research company. You know, we've been exposed to the, the nuclear industry for many, many years, and our people are comfortable with that.
4: Coal has long overshadowed an established, globally connected nuclear industry right here in the Ohio Valley region. There are no nuclear power plants in the area, but Paducah has long been a hub for trucking, shipping, and temporarily storing fissile materials used to power a global nuclear market. For example, data from the World Institute for Strategic Economic Research shows 66% of all uranium-related products the U.S. shipped to Russia in 2016 came from Kentucky. TAM International, a Canadian freight forwarding company, holds the U.S. export license on some of those materials. The company moved its U.S. headquarters to Paducah two years ago. So
5: what TAM usually deals with is what we call the front end of the fuel cycle.
4: That's Steve Hansen, Vice President of Regulatory Compliance for TAM. Hansen says they hold a license to transport UF-6, or uranium hexafluoride.
5: That's basically taking it from the mine or the mill to the fuel fabricator.
4: TAM takes materials from the nearby Honeywell facility where uranium is converted from solid form to a liquid form. The material is then ready to be shipped to one of TAM's clients, usually overseas.
5: If you start looking at other countries of how much material China is importing, how much material India is importing, you know, those places are actually a boom in nuclear. It's just, you know, not right now, not
4: here. TAM's decision to relocate to the region gives hope to boosters like Senator Carroll. Other companies have expressed interest in the region, including GE and a company Bill Gates owns called TerraPower.
0: TerraPower claims that there is enough material in Paducah today to fuel this entire country for in excess of 700 years. That
4: material is depleted uranium now housed at USEC, the old DOE site. TerraPower has technology that can actually turn it into fuel. Supporters like Leaper and Carol hope that could mean the area is sitting on a gold mine of spent uranium.
3: When we come back, more on what's happening at the site in Portsmouth you heard about in that story and its future as a potential driver of economic development.
0: My name's Joel Bradburn. I'm with the Department of Energy. I am the site lead at the Portsmouth site. I am part of uh, the EM organization with the Department of Energy and specifically the Portsmouth Paducah Project Office, which is uh, out of Lexington, Kentucky.
3: If you don't mind, could you give me an overview of the Portsmouth site facility?
0: Sure. Um, So the Portsmouth site, it was uh, part of the uh nuclear weapons program originally uh Portsmouth uh gaseous diffusion plant it's uh as the name would imply you know it's uh operational design was uh to separate the isotopes of uranium uh enriching uh, the isotope of uh, isotope U235 um, it was part of a very interesting uh history uh you know with the advent of the cold war uh, after World War II, uh, and then uh, following the Korean War, there was a, a, a national need for uh, for for a uranium enrichment capacity as part of the nuclear weapons program. And uh, so we're one of three gaseous diffusion plants in the nation. Uh, the first is uh, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. The second one, I'll say our sister plant, was... Uh, Built in Paducah, Kentucky, in 1951, and we were the last one to be constructed. And uh, we started uh, our construction in early uh, 1952.
3: And and how large is this facility? I've uh, heard people describe it as massive. Would you say that's a, a fair assessment?
0: Uh, I would say uh, the the buildings here would probably change your massive paradigm. Uh, the site itself is situated on uh, about 37, almost 4,000 acres uh, between, uh, between Chillicothe, Ohio, and Portsmouth, Ohio, uh, about two miles outside of Piketon in Pike County. Um, it's, pro- its main, uh, I guess, signature buildings, uh, we have three process buildings, and each one is about 33 acres under roof uh comprised of two floors uh containing what we call our process gas equipment so uh imagine you know i cutting 33 acres of grass um, I- these buildings are massive so each one is about a half mile long and uh, if you can imagine the uh the engineering and, and construction effort involved in in uh building these things uh construction started in 19 19- Uh, 52, and in 1954 I believe uh, we initially started operations and going into full production in 56 so um, you know there was no limit as to what uh, this nation could do back then.
3: And you have to imagine that uh, a lot of different people came to the area and worked at this facility so I'm sure it's ingrained in the community correct?
0: It is. It is very ingrained in community, and and it's interesting. So when they were doing site selection uh, for the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant, so the Oak Ridge site was already in place and in operations as part of the Manhattan uh, Project. Uh, Paducah, as I mentioned, was uh, built in 1951, and they felt the need for another site. And So there were some pretty interesting siting criteria. One, it had to be 150 miles away from either plant. for, for you know, operational security, uh, they looked at um, readily, readily available and cost-efficient uh, means of, of uh, providing a significant amount of electricity. And so to give you some perspective on that, uh, the uh, plant itself, two, um, uh, re- two switchyards, two electrical switchyards at the site that provided electricity here, uh, each switchyard. Uh, capable of 2,200 megawatts um, and that was provided by two uh, uh, dedicated cold-fired power plants uh, built specifically as part of the the, uh, the, uh, site operations uh, at uh, at Portsmouth. Um, Some other things they looked at, of course, were uh, nearby water supply, access to necessary labor, and uh, also uh, a region where the climate wouldn't necessarily impact operations, so nothing you know far north or or incredibly far south, and and uh, and and uh, we were actually in competition with with uh, other areas: uh, Kansas City, uh, Birmingham, Shreveport, Oklahoma. Finally settled, uh, finally settled here. So, and, and I believe that had a lot to do with the support of the local community at the time a lot of mailings, a lot of letters, a lot of local support. Uh, I believe it was initially uh, close to going to the Cincinnati area, but there were some labor issues uh, associated with Fernald, uh, the feed material production plant at Fernald, and uh, eventually settled here. So it, it is an integral part of the local community.
3: Now, as the site lead for the uh, portsmouth site d and D project, can you uh, explain to our listeners what those two d's stand for and what's going on uh with the site currently?
0: The plant itself um, I mentioned it started production operations in the uh in the the fifties uh, it uh transitioned missions uh through the course of the years um went from primarily focused on uh, weapons material, uh, transitioned over to uh, nuclear fuel for the Navy, and then in the 90s uh, uh, the, uh, a law was passed privatizing enrichment operations uh, in which uh, that established the uh, United States Enrichment Corporation, or USEC, and so they it was actually privately operated uh, in the in the mid-90s uh, under NRC uh, regulation until it shut down in 2001, uh, it stayed in a in a ready to to restart state until 2005, and then it was officially uh, decided that uh, the plant would uh, not restart. And so then we talk about entering into uh, or planning for D and D, and that stands for deactivation and decommissioning. Uh, but it's really part of the broader uh, addressing the environmental legacy of, of uh, the plant operations here at the site. So that not only uh, addresses the buildings and, uh, and uh, turning them off, uh, which is not an easy task, addressing the contaminants, both hazardous and radiological, but also we do have, uh, you know, ground uh, contamination, groundwater contamination, primarily from solvents. Uh, that were part of the operational process and and legacy waste management practices. And so the scope of the work here, the cleanup scope, is is addressing all that uh, and uh, reducing future taxpayer liability and returning uh, something of value back to the community uh, for potential reuse.
3: I imagine that different parts of the facility require um, different approaches in this process, would you mind uh, providing some insight into maybe just one of those processes and about how many uh, individuals it takes to accomplish that process?
0: Sure. So I mentioned uh, it was it uh, construction started in in uh, the early 50s and finished up mid 50s. So we we built it in about four years. Uh, the uh, workforce that was mobilized to do that was over 20,000 construction folks. Um, Taking it down, you know, when you put it up, it's all clean. And then after, you know, several decades of operation, um, you know, you not only have the, the, you know, later identified hazardous constituents of of, uh, materials of construction, things like asbestos, PCBs, uh, other oils, uh, you also now have the, the products in, introduced uh, through the production process proper. And so in, in our case, you know, the process uh, centered around uh, a gaseous uh, enrichment operation, and we used uranium hexafluoride. And so you have some, some pretty interesting chemical actors uh, with, with fluorines and, and chlorine and, and uh, other uh, chemicals, but also now you have a radioactive component as well. And because our mission was to produce high enriched uranium for for weapons and and nuclear fuel, there is a a, a nuclear safety risk uh, as part of the deactivation of the uh, of the facility as well.
3: In, in this process, about how many individuals are working overall?
0: We're we're one of the larger employers in in southern Ohio. We have on site uh, total. Uh, Nominally, 2,500 uh, folks, and of that 2,500, uh, approximately, you know, 2,200, uh, you know, are part of the, I'll say, the cleanup mission for the gaseous diffusion plant.
3: Where would you say you're at on the timeline for deactivation now?
0: Our, our actions, you know, at a federal site are governed by regulation, and uh, the process that we would go about to clean up the site you know, is, is, uh, is also covered by regulation. And uh, Ohio EPA is our primary uh, oversight, although we had involvement by U.S. EPA. Uh, the plant went through a series of, of uh, stages of, of shutdown and cleanup, and so we have uh, actions that we have taken under the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, um, we have also entered into, <clears throat> excuse me, agreements with the the director of Ohio EPA uh, by issuance of of uh, orders from the director and, and signature by uh, representative of, of DOE. And the process for deciding on the buildings, the structural elements of the site, um, we went through a CERCLA process and. That would be what to do with the buildings. So you make decisions, informed decisions on, on do you maintain buildings or do you tear them down based on you know their constituents of construction and uh, and, and and cost to maintain. Uh, we also went through a decision process on what to do with the uh, of the waste that gets generated from obviously uh, demolition of of all the buildings on the site. It, it, it primarily the three very large process buildings and so all those were done in a regulatory framework and it, a very transparent process very you know public process we started in 2011 and uh, reaching records of decision in 2015
3: what is the future for this particular project that you're working on and um what steps remain before the the project is complete?
0: We went through a pretty um engaging process um, you know this is something that that's a question that we ask ourselves early in in uh in our preparation stage and as part of our regulatory stage um, and, and really you know as i mentioned the e m environmental management uh, um Office of the Department of Energy our job is to remediate the the weapons uh, Legacy production legacy and so here legislatively, you know, we we have Specific guidelines that we can spend our funding dollars on and that is to clean this place up But to complement that we went through a very um, Exhaustive process on polling the community because our at the end of the day. We want to transition, you know the site uh, to the community for some future use. And um, we went, we enlisted Ohio University via grant to uh, to do what we call the Fort's, Fort's Future Project. So it took about 18 months. And they did a very, um, very uh, scientific process where they went through four counties, participation by elected officials, economic development folks. And at the end of the day, um, it was, you know pretty much told us what we intuitively thought uh, being in southern Ohio and that that uh, everybody wanted an opportunity for uh, for future jobs at the site um, reindustrialization <clears throat> and so with that in mind, we sat down with with our our uh, our contractor team and with our local community um, boards and said, hey, look you know what what do we feel is a is a is uh, the best possible in state for the site. And with that uh, we laid out essentially um, uh, a, a site where we uh, would provide the best opportunity for redevelopment and that included leaving some of the existing infrastructure in place. <clears throat> so if you might imagine, I mentioned that the uh, we had two independent coal-fired plants built Uh, specifically to provide electricity to the Portsmouth site. Uh, At one time, this site was the largest single point consumer of electricity in in the country. Uh, We are a small to large city. Um, And that infrastructure still exists. So with the transmission lines that fed the plant, um, you have access in about a 100-acre plot to uh, transmission service to Uh, the United States, all the East Coast, all the way west to the Rocky Mountains. And so the community thought, you know, that's an asset that we don't want to lose. From a water standpoint, the plant required 40 million gallons of water a day. Uh, That's another asset the community said, you know what, that might be valuable as well. So uh, we have a sewer uh, wastewater treatment plant on site, you know, with several million gallons of permitted capacity. Again, the uh, community goes, want want to, want to keep that in mind as we're cleaning the place up and i could go on, you know, 20 miles of uh industrial grade rail, you know, about 20 miles of roads. And so we went to a pretty detailed process of, of saying this is what we want is an end state for this site. And then we went through okay, how do we approach this from a cleanup standpoint and and our our uh, our, our project plan now is Uh, through the record of decision process for those I'll say demolition debris a material rather than shipping them off-site um, it made sense to uh, dispose of them at an on-site disposal cell we have pretty strict uh, requirements for uh, for design and site location for that Uh, but with that it affords us the opportunity to um, use uh, the soil the contaminated soil from our some legacy landfills on site and plumes that are currently uh, closed under another regulation um, as our engineered fill engineered fill would be as you might imagine if you're placing uh, demolition debris these buildings are made out of structural steel when you place those in a disposal cell you'll have void spaces around uh... this cell has to last designed to last for a thousand years and is modeled uh, you know at a much longer period of time you have to you have to fill those void spaces with with uh compacted soil and instead of using clean soil, we now have an opportunity to use contaminated soil and so by placing the the, the building debris uh, excavating our landfills and plumes within side perimeter road. What we get is a is a site that's that's uh clean and suitable for industrial reuse and also has uh, an opportunity for somebody if they you know if we they decide to come in to take advantage of the the uh, access to power access to water access to sewer access to rail that the site you know uh, uh, has as part of the the uh, previous production operation we are just wrapping up the, uh, I'll say, the deactivation part of the first of three big process buildings. By the end of uh, this calendar year, first part of next calendar year, we'll have a building that is demolition ready. Um, We are in the process of constructing uh, our on-site disposal facility but we are in the preliminary stages of that. In preliminary, uh, I say, you know, establishing the infrastructure needed to the site, some trailers to house construction personnel, uh, the uh, the um, communications and power that those people in the tra- that little trailer complex requires, and doing uh, preliminary site grading. Uh, just as you would in any other construction site, you have to pro- uh, f- provide for uh, sedimentation control from from rain and runoff water, and so we're constructing what we call sedimentation ponds in preparation for uh, some uh, larger scale, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, soil excavation that should happen uh, later this this fall, early winter.
3: Do you have uh, an estimated or a projected date for the project being uh, com completely finished or because of the complex nature of the project? Is it more of a uh, trying to set deadlines just on individual projects before looking at the whole thing?
0: So when we went and established what the end state would be, essentially the goal line, uh, we were able to work back from that. And we have a reasonable forecast uh, to complete. Um, You know, and we're talking nothing near term. We also had to establish a, a funding level of which to, you know, base our estimate on. Right now, we're estimating that somewhere about 2039 will be complete. And so, understand that complete is not just demolition of the buildings and waste placement, but we also have to follow up and certify the, that all the the area that we've been performing these activities on meet the uh, the uh, final in state. Uh, uh, limits that, uh, that have been established by Ohio EPA. So it's not just the demolition, and I'll say the, you know, the large-scale cleanup. You actually also have to come back and certify analytically that you've, you've met your cleanup limits.
3: I, I want to know, you've been working on this a while, I want to know what about this project interests you the most?
0: you know i'm excited about the the possibilities this site holds for the future okay it's an interesting professionally it's interesting as a as a cleanup project and and as you're cleaning something up you learn a lot about you know its history of operation and you know, all those things professionally interest me but but you know if you if you sit back and you look at what's the potential that this site has to offer for future generations once the place is cleaned up Um, you know, I'd say that's the really exciting piece, and there's a lot of folks in the local community that are working hard to make that, uh, that become a reality, too, and, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it, you know, it affords you the opportunity to, to work for something that's, that's, uh, that's great, could be great, and so, you know, sure, it has its ups and downs, you know, and, and keeping, keeping everybody, you know, pulling on the, own the oars together is, you know, that's always a challenge. But uh, you look at what this place could be and what the future might hold, and, and that's the exciting part.
3: All right. Well, uh, is there anything that you wanted to add about the project that maybe I didn't ask?
0: You know, the site gets labeled as a DOE site, and it is. And we work to serve the taxpayer and, and guardians of, of, you know, our, the, the tax dollars. But the people here, when they go home, they're part of the local community. And so you get a lot of pride in, in work and, and the dedication to making this place, you know, something for the future is is just as great today as it was in the past, you know, building the place and operating it. And I'll say when you look at how the site was operating, having go, done, uh, you know, cleanups at other places, you can tell that the place was operated with pride, that it was operated carefully. Like I said, most of the contamination here at the site is actually from solvents that used to just, you know, what, people kind of took for granted, uh, uh, you know, back as, you know, part of the, you know, how people used chemicals in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, But I just, you know, I don't forget about uh, the good hard work that everybody puts in every day out here. And from a safety perspective, we're proud of our safety record, which for the heavy, uh... um, Work that we do here, um, we're pretty pretty proud of our safety record, which is well below any industry average that you can find out there. So maybe that's the last bit I did.
3: More on the Portsmouth site, including photos taken throughout its history, can be found at PortsmouthVirtualMuseum.org/history. Coming up, more on the Ports Future project Mr. Brad mentioned.
6: My name is Stephanie Howe, and I work at the Boine Average School for Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University.
3: Can you kind of explain to me the origins of the Ports Future Project?
6: Yes, so we have uh, a long-running grant relationship with the U.S. Department of Energy to uh, their Office of Environmental Management, and that is the unit of DOE that is tasked with cleaning up uh, a site here in Ohio that had been part of Uh, their uranium enrichment uh, facilities back in the 1950s. So they had reached out to Ohio University to find some people that could work on a grant, engage in a variety of projects that would inform the cleanup of the site, uh, provide STEM education experiences to local students, and find ways to engage uh, residents in the area surrounding the facility on cleanup and future use. So that's what we've been doing. We are currently in our eighth year with the grant, and throughout this time, we've done a variety of of different projects at the site. Can
3: you highlight some of those projects uh, that you've undertaken over the eight years of the grant?
6: Sure. We started out doing a, a very extensive community engagement process and that was led by some faculty here at the university. Uh, Dr. Michelle Maroney designed and and helped implement the rollout and there was many people uh, involved on teams. And what we did, we went out to the community and there's a four county area that served as the primary labor market for the facility when it was operational. So it was Pike County is the county in which the facility sits, Ross County, Scioto County, Jackson County. So those were the the counties that drew the labor market for the facility. And as operations ceased and jobs were downsized, we were left with this this large infrastructure and this taxpayer-funded asset and and trying to figure out what would the community like to see happen to the facility as it was cleaned up and turned back over um, for public use and so we we did a lot of awareness events, county fairs, farm bureaus, Kiwanis clubs, you know, went to Walmart, different places where we could find people and get their input on what they would like to see have happen. Then we recruited people, these are all residents in these counties to sit on visioning teams and we walked them through an extensive uh, process for here's the here are the assets of the site. Here are the restrictions. What would you like to see happen in a in a best ideal world? And each county had their own teams. They selected leaders to come together as an advisory group for all four counties, and then Ohio University worked with them to come up with um, the top best possibilities for future use of the site. We then took those out and met with the public at large, again at county fairs and speaking engagements, uh, online voting, a lot of publicity. And the top things that people in the four counties wanted to see have happen with the facility in the future, their number one would be a nuclear power plant, which was interesting that the community was so open to that, but it just is a good reflection on how comfortable people have been with the operations of the facility when it was running in the 1950s to the early 1990s. They also were interested in seeing anything that would result in green energy production, alternative energy, um, manufacturing, and also uh, national research and development, which many other former DOE sites, you know, that's a component that can be incorporated. So we really had a really good input and response from the community. And this information was then provided to the Department of Energy and also they have a citizens advisory board that the um, DOE folks engage with on a regular basis over there. So they were able to incorporate this as, as you were doing cleanup, we want the standards and the infrastructure left to support these types of possible future uses. So that was this kind of the kickoff of how we got started.
3: Where are you now in that, uh, uh, getting that land developed for future use?
6: Right. So from there, we also did, uh, over the course of the, the years that followed, uh, work that helped inform DOE as a, an independent third party, which is one of the really great benefits of this having this public university here in southern Ohio that we can come and bring all of the the resources of the university and knowledge of the university and help address and solve problems or inform community processes that are occurring. So we were able to utilize uh, faculty and students from 13 different academic disciplines at OU to do a variety of applied research projects that then DOE would use these reports as they were considering what needed to happen next. Like for example, we did a, a site characterization of the habitat um, and wildlife at the site. You know, what are areas that are high quality that you wanna protect. We did um, a wetlands and primary stream uh, uh, mitigation design. Here, here are your high quality areas with wetlands and your stream heads and these are things that should be protected if you redevelop you know, how, how, how the DOE and other industries would want to um, work around those or be aware of them. Because if you disturb them, then you have to mitigate. So prevention is always better than remediation, obviously. So we were able to provide that data to them. We've done things with um, a lot of data analysis for them, constructing geographic information systems, maps, interactive maps, Um, really just providing tools that decision-makers could use and that can continually be updated to help with the process. Then currently we're working with the uh, community reuse organization in that area. It's called the Southern Ohio Diversification Initiative. And they are the designated uh, entity by DOE. They're designated to be the entity that takes the assets of the site and uses it in in economic development for the four-county area. So they've been in existence since uh, 1995. They incorporated as a not-for-profit in 97, but that is their mission. So their mission is to diversify the regional economy in those four-county areas and also to develop and uh, utilize the, the assets of the site and the facilities for future economic growth. And what their current focus is is looking at how do we take this massive infrastructure over there, and it is, it's like a military base if you ever visit the site. It's incredible. Um, And how do we leverage those infrastructure assets and the land and the location to create a a, a next-generation manufacturing facility? And looking at an integrated energy system, which is essentially closed-loop manufacturing where you co-locate energy producers and intensive energy users and you have industries where one industry's waste product is another industry's feedstock. So it becomes this kind of cyclical closed-loop manufacturing facility where it's more economical for industry it's better for um, the environment and it conserves on cost and resources, et cetera. And, and it's just a, a really good facility that could support that, the infrastructure that exists there. So that's really the, the main focus now is trying to figure out what do we need to look at at the site, what exists currently, what is missing, what is the infrastructure that needs to be maintained, preserved, augmented. Um, and all those kinds of things and that's the work we're focused on uh, With with them at the site right now
3: uh, STEM education you mentioned that uh, part of the project was um, Going out into the, to the community and educating the youth about uh, STEM. Can you a- explain what that entails?
2: Sure,
6: so we've uh, each year we have done worked with a local high school in Pike County one of their classrooms, you know, the the principal will identify a teacher who's willing to take it on as a project throughout the year. And we work with students to learn about the massive annual site environmental report, which is known as an ACER, A S E R, and to take that massive report about site conditions that DOE produces every year and put it into a smaller, more digestible understandable, user-friendly document that then is sent out to all kinds of entities throughout the county. So the students, throughout the year, we have one of our staff here, uh, Daniel Klopfer, here at the Voinovich School, who has been running it the past few years, um, so he'll work with a the teacher. They build a curriculum around sections of that ACER, how do we teach the students about what this data means, and then help them with translating it into a more consumer-friendly document. The site provides subject matter experts to come in and speak to the students. So they go in and give lectures. Um, And those are folks that are either with DOE or with the uh, private sector contractors who are are doing the cleanup work. Then uh, students do tours of the site. They also engage with the Citizens Advisory Board that I mentioned. So they really learn a lot about the site throughout the course of the academic year. Um we take them out, our water quality folks here at the Voynebridge School take them out to do water quality sampling at Lake Hope State Park so they can get a sense of here's what it, it, it means to do water quality sampling and how that applies to the work that happens uh, on cleanup. And so, in the end, it culminates with um, a document uh, it's probably about a 25-page uh, document. They incorporate their own student artwork or local artwork in the region that they want to include. And it's really driven by the students and really and just guided by the teacher and our staff and the faculty here. And that's been uh, a really popular program. And then the school prints them out. We print them out here and distribute them. I think there's about 400 copies of that that go out to various places in the four-county region. DOE uh, really is supportive of this project. They do a celebration at the end of the year and give students certificates and and acknowledge them. So DOE is very involved in that. We've also done um, business pitch competitions with college students. So we've worked with Ohio University Chillicothe Regional Campus, which resides in Ross County and that's one of the counties that is associated with uh, the former labor market, the Shiny State University in um, Scioto County, and University of Rio Grande, which is uh, in a different county, but pulls from that same kind of population. So our uh, entrepreneurship group here at the Voynich School goes in and works with college student classes who want to participate. They learn about the site, and then they design possible future businesses that might want to access, access the infrastructure and the facility. And then DOE is involved in that and the students engage in a competition where they make a pitch and there's a, you know an award given and a winner or whatever, those kinds of things. But it's just another way of engaging the college students uh, in, the, in the county. And then we've done, for the general public, we have done entrepreneurship round tables. The same group, our Tech Growth Ohio entrepreneurship group Finds local entrepreneurs in each of these counties, and we have roundtable discussions open to the public. So people that might be transitioning from the site, because as cleanup continues, e jobs will, will be phased out, what are their ideas for starting their own business, and what are the pitfalls, and what are the things you should know? And those have been very well attended and very successful. We just completed around this spring and that was uh, led by John Glazer and Faith Knutson here at the Voyner School who find local entrepreneurs in each county, and they're happy to talk about it. We have food at the events. It's an evening event. People in the community come, um, and those have been very successful as well. So, you know, we just try to, to really do what are the different populations we can reach out to, high school kids, they're thinking about careers. What do I want to go to, into when I graduate from high school? Do I want to go to college? What types of jobs can I do that I could stay here? Because the site cleanup will be going on for another approximately 30 years. But as this cleanup occurs, property will be transferred for other uses to SODI, the community reuse organization. So there's kind of two things that are going on. You know, with the cleanup... And what are opportunities there for for work, and then the future use with reindustrialization?
3: Usually on the show, we ask guests um, what does our area need and how we get it. But through the project, the the community has really kind of had its input on what this site needs. Um, but I, I would like to ask you: Is they're going to? be a need for additional help in achieving the goals that the community has set? And if so, where is that help going to come from?
6: When the transition occurs and as the community reuse organization starts to receive the assets, the property, and we know what infrastructure is there, we're identifying now what are the best fits for industries that could locate there. There's been engagement with uh, officials at the state of Ohio, the Jobs Ohio, and, and uh, through the Department of uh, Administrative Services. The whole thing connects to this. is a uh, This facility is a big asset for the state of Ohio. It's tucked away here in southern Ohio. Not many people are even aware of it. But how can the state of Ohio really look at? Okay, now this is really becoming real and and how do we want to leverage this asset for our state, create jobs, in- increase the tax base, grow businesses. So it'll really be become more of an economic development project then in, in that aspect. Because what the US Department of Energy Office of Environmental Management, their their mission is to clean up the the facility. You know, their their mission is not to do economic development, but they engage with the community to make sure that they are leaving things there that the community wants left there that can be reused for other purposes. They're engaging with the community reuse organization about transferring parcels of property that are of highest value for an economic development mission sooner, whenever that is possible. Um, You know, really trying to sequence things that make sense so that 30 years doesn't have to go by before reindustrialization occurs. So I think that it's really collaboration is one thing throughout these eight years that I've I've witnessed and been involved with between the federal government, local entities, the community reuse organization, national laboratories have been involved at different times, regulatory entities here in, in the state of Ohio who oversee the cleanup consultation with economic development officials at the county level, the regional level, the state level, um, and it's, it's just been very exciting for Ohio University to be a part of that and really to try just to help facilitate in any way that we can. Because a big part of our mission at Ohio University and especially at the Voyner Ridge School is, as I said earlier, to really take the resources and knowledge of this university and and go out and try to help solve problems in the region. And as you know, Southern Ohio region needs a lot of help, and we want to be a part of of the solution, especially around uh, job creation and improving people's lives in that way.
3: Uh, I'd like to know what, in your opinion, has been the most interesting thing about this project? And I'll leave that as open-ended as possible.
6: (laughs) well it's funny i I say to folks when i when they hear about the work I'm doing and I talk about it and how we're moving into you know through our eighth year. it's been like initially similar to being back in graduate school and learning all this new new information and new data, and there was so much to learn to to get ramped up and now it's as it's evolved it's the most uh, rewarding thing has been really seeing the collaboration as I just mentioned and there's so many moving parts and there's so many entities that need to be involved to get to the desired outcome of leveraging an asset billions of dollars have been put into this facility billions of dollars will be put in to clean it up as a taxpayer as a citizen of Ohio as many other folks have articulated we want to see something good come of this, some some way to leverage this into the future, and that's the most exciting part right now. All the potential possibilities, so many people that agree and are aligned with, yes, we could really look at leveraging this asset for future job creation and hopefully to really transform one of the most impoverished parts of the state of Ohio. And I, I just I feel honored to be able to be a part of this project in, in that respect. Well, I think one other thing I'd, I'd like to say you know, publicly uh, would be Ohio University's you know, deep gratitude for the Department of Energy, Office of Environmental Management, uh, Portsmouth-Paducah Port Project Office, which is in Lexington. Uh, they oversee both cleanup at the site here in Ohio. There's a similar site in Paducah, Kentucky. But really our appreciation for engaging with us to provide us a grant, connect us with the, the DOE facility here in Ohio, and to really be supportive of the work that we're doing. It's, it's been um, really rewarding for so many faculty, students, and people here. We're so grateful to be able to try and help our local communities, and it's been a, a really wonderful relationship. Coming up, WOUB
5: arts and culture reporter Emily Vota is back to catch you up on what's happening with the 457-SEO arts scene. Welcome back to the 457-SEO, and now we have our fearless leader in the culture department, Emily Vota. Emily's in the house. She 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 keeps us hip over here in the news department. She's She's, she's given us good.
1: I've learned some things. I've discovered some things. You've
5: learned what good music is. Yes, I know.
7: (laughs) Thanks, Emily. Sure thing. In (laughs) time. You're fresh off of the
5: Nelsonville Music Festival. I know that was quite the experience. Yeah. And now, this, your second one doing yep, it for, for us, one. right? Yeah, my second
7: one, and I did. It, things worked a little smoother this year, so hey, mm-hmm. keep going that direction.
5: Did you get to enjoy it too? I hope.
7: I mean, I saw They Might Be Giants. That was my main thing. Like, as long as I saw them, I was like, it's okay. And I saw them, so it was good.
1: <laughs> Other than that, it was just a world window. <laughs> yeah, it
7: was just, ah, were, yeah, yelling well, so at people. What are you,
1: I know we have some stuff that we need to talk about, but what do you, for our festival coverage, what are you doing?
7: Like, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah.
1: What, what all those balls that you're juggling?
7: Yeah, totally. Well, probably the main main stuff I have to do is I do I did a lot of photo editing. Yeah. I had two photographers who also shot some film that I'm hoping. I'm hoping they'll submit to WOUB. Um, some of their photos just got um, published in No Depression, on No Depression's website. And they're a big, they're like a big, uh, um, like, uh, alternative country magazine. But Ooh. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Maurice Schwartz and uh, Joe Snyder, they did a really great job. Cool. Um, a lot of editing photos. Um, probably the biggest part of my job was coordinating video shoots because we often would just get media releases for certain bands, like a couple minutes before the performance. So we wouldn't know whether we could um, record them or not. But in the end, we got, like, 17 videos, and we got two interviews that we're still working on. Um, the cactus blossoms talked to me, and so did Doc Robinson. Doc Robinson's pretty cool. They're just from Columbus, and then cactus blossoms are, like, phenomenal. They're they're from Minnesota, and they were just on Twin Peaks,
5: actually. Ooh. And we have the sessions coming, too, I'm sure. Yes, yes. Yeah. Actually,
7: first, one, uh, um, first one's debuted this week, which is the week of June 12th.
0: Nice.
1: Cool. And so um, – What's your like when you when you're thinking about Nelsonville Music Festival and how you want to cover it? Like, what's your goal? Like, what what do you have in your head about what you want to do, in terms of the coverage for folks?
7: Yeah, for sure. I, I want to. Um, I mean, not everybody can uh, make it out, but it's a pretty unique experience. Like people say it's magical, and that's not even that much of an exaggeration. It's a pretty cool thing. Like I want to through our our coverage and oh, we had some great editorial too. I was I was. Um, Hern and did some fantastic editorials. Submitting a couple things to me every day to get edited and up on the site with some photos. Um, I wanted to be if if someone could just just read and look through our, our like one of our daily posts because I tried to do at least two three posts a day outside of video posts because I was doing like two three video posts a day too but, and, and kind of get a feeling for what it's like to be there. Cause it's a very, it's a really cool, it's a great event. It really is.
5: It really is like a, a an adventure, a lifestyle adventure. The yeah. whole weekend you're just immersed in this stuff. Yeah.
7: Yeah. It's like nonstop. And it's a, it's a cool thing. I hope someday I can just enjoy it as a civilian, but for now, <laughs> not so much. i say every <laughs> year,
1: well, we were talking with Chris, I say every year that I'm going to go, and I never never go. I I, you
7: can get a pass. I I mean,
1: I was right. But it it comes around again to be that time, and then I'm not in the right mindset or or something, and I'm just like, I don't know if I want to. Yeah, put myself through that, and I just don't get myself hyped up to go, and so I'm like, hey, i got go to go next year. It's a wonderful
5: <laughs> escape from the news. You need to. Yeah. That's
7: great. Yeah. It's a cool four-day thing. Totally. Yes. Okay. So well, next year. Next year. That's next right. Year. 2018. <laughs> that, MMF, Watch out. Like, Atish it. is coming.
5: <laughs> in the meantime, you introduced Atish to some new music, um, Clubhouse. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about
7: who they yeah, are? Yeah, totally. I love Clubhouse. Yeah, and I was super. That was great. I'm so glad you. I'm so glad you enjoyed them. They're they're great. They're a couple of young, um, like 20, 21 year old undergrads. Uh, all of them are OU students except for one fella, and he's a um, OSU student. But they, we won't hold that against you know, them. We'll try, but <laughs> but uh, they're actually. Um, over this weekend, they're going to be playing at the Firefly Music Festival, which is huge. Um, that I mean, the headliners are like Bob Dylan, Chance the Rapper, Weezer, Franz Ferdinand. Like, this is a big festival.
1: So, how did they get into the festival? What I mean, that's yeah. a big, that's a big deal.
7: For sure, for sure, they won. Um, they won the Big Break Global Contest, which is a thing. Firefly um, has. I'm not too sure how long they've been doing that, but it helps. Like smaller acts, maybe unsigned acts too. Um, they depending on how many votes each act gets, they whoever gets the most votes, it's pretty simple, is going to get to play at the Firefly Music Festival, and and they have a really dedicated fan base and a pretty significant uh, social media uh, presence. So they utilize that and they won.
5: And they are playing with some big names over there, aren't they? Yeah.
7: It's, it's huge, huge. They they actually had gone to the uh, music festival back in 2015 as a group, and I guess they were just very all very frustrated that they weren't playing there, which kind of shows how much gumption they have. Gotcha. Yeah.
5: Can you talk a little bit about uh, the music and how you – obviously it drew a Tish in, but what's their <laughs> music like?
7: Totally, totally. It's like it's very um, – well, Tish said it earlier. It was good. It, 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 like, it's kind of ethereal, but honestly I was kind of thinking of it in terms of being like – Sort of like really, it's like boy band music from another dimension. Like it's like EDM-y and like it's like, you know, yes. it feels like there might be a drug reference somewhere that I'm just not seeing. I don't know. That's so. boy band
1: music from another dimension. Yeah, that is, like, that is okay. exactly what so it seems that's like. Right.
5: Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's in sync in a nice hazy room. With yeah. Lots of yeah, and just,
1: yeah, and just and it also sounds like it's from another, um, a little bit of from another t- uh, time period, totally. right? Totally. Sort of vintage. Yeah, some vintagey, but but dancey and poppy at the same time, Mm -hmm. yeah.
7: Yeah, very 2017. I know,
1: so can we hear some of that music? Yeah,
7: absolutely.
5: You're totally right. That's I would listen to that back in the 90s in my bedroom. Right? <laughs> totally.
7: Yeah, for sure. And
1: so that, what was the name of that song?
7: That song is Kira. Kira.
1: Okay. I, I, we were we were jamming in here. We yeah. were definitely jamming. That's yeah. So, these guys are all music majors at OU?
7: No, actually they're all um uh, accounting or engineering. What? <laughs> uh, I know, right? That's why they're so successful. I mean, like uh, Mick Jagger was a business major, so Hey, I did not know that. And it's true. Keith Richards was an arts major, so they even each other out. <laughs> this is
5: why you're the lead of this culture. Oh, because thank you so the much. We we the we little nuggets of
1: information that we get. <laughs> really? So they're they're not majoring in music at mm-hmm. all. But now, do they aspire to? They want to do this like? They want to go yeah, big time. They're going
7: big time. They want to go headlong. I mean, the the one uh, Max is graduating the uh, I think at the end of. S- Uh, At the begin at the end of fall semester, and then everybody else is going to graduate that coming this coming spring. So they're they're ready to take it on. At least they said that.
5: Did they talk about? Do they use their degrees in inspiring their music at all? Is that a weird question? I mean,
7: like I feel like well, they they very much are. They're very uh, goal oriented for sure. And, um, but, like, even just little things, just corresponding with the band. Like, they're so good with their, like, getting back on email and, like, like sending up an interview. <laughs> they're professional. They've got a marketing plan. Yeah. They've got, like, a oh, business yeah. plan. That's what it's you totally learn in those business like, clusters yeah. at and, OU. And, yeah. and, and mm-hmm.
1: so they've got all that stuff going for them. Yeah. And they obviously got the musical talent. It's, mm-hmm. it's definitely, for, it sounds like that for me. Like, I, so, so they go to school full time, and they're playing music and touring. That's got to be. That's gotta be a lot.
7: Rough. Did you ask them about that? Yeah, yeah. They they said it was um, kind of awful. So I can only <laughs> imagine. I can imagine just yeah. <laughs>
5: trying without leading a music career. Trying yeah, to totally.
7: <laughs> just trying to be. I mean, a, but a lot of other
1: students do a lot of other stuff too, like the marching. I'm sure mm-hmm. like yeah, juggling marching your marching, being a marching band member, and then having to do all your classwork and stuff. But they said, well, maybe business classes are more intense. I don't know. Mm.
7: Who knows? I, who? So
1: it's kind of awful. They said.
7: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it was kind of awful, but they're they're figuring it out. But they were super. <coughs> Thankful, They seem to really draw a correlation between their, their large fan base, I mean relatively pretty large for the um, size of band they are. I know that they're signed with a publishing company I don't think they're signed with a recording label, but um, so they're—they're they're pretty. You know, they're kind of small, but they have a good amount of fans. And they—it seemed like they attributed being in college to really like networking and mm-hmm. like having people who like consistently, religiously come to their shows. Well, I
5: mean, Twenty One Pilots do the same thing. They were at Ohio State oh, running yeah. their running their business, trying to get their band up, and now look at them. Yeah, that's true. But even dropping yeah. some music dropping knowledge. knowledge. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know very little, but I drop it. you You drop, oh, a, drop what you with do skill. know. Oh, absolutely, with skill.
7: with skill. Hopefully, club, Clubhouse is already a lot better than 21 Pilots. Though, well, so. that's
5: what I was going to say, they were. it's very accessible music. Yeah. It, we were saying in the newsroom, it sounds like 1975, if yeah, anybody's totally. heard of that. So, I mean, they had two pop hits already on the top 40 charts, so I'm sure this band will be next, I'm sure. Yeah. You heard it here first.
1: Predictions right. by Susan Tebbin <laughs> and Emily Vota. Yeah, so, right. so they're touring. The, what are they doing? They're, they're playing the music festival, and they're are they doing but, anything? Yeah, this summer? they
7: they booked a, a whole bunch of uh, dates out um, in in general in this general uh, vicinity. Um, it, you, they're very 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 active on Facebook. So, if you're curious about where they're playing next, just gotta find them on Facebook.
1: Okay, and so we have one more song from them? Yeah, I would yeah. Love to, I would love to hear it.
7: Absolutely, absolutely. We
5: got to jam again.
1: We've got the young OU student band, and then we've got the singing lawyer. (laughs)
7: Yeah, that's right. And they're both cool. They're both cool. Frank Lavelle is is just a great guy in general, and he is also a lawyer in Athens and also a uh, psychedelic interdimensional space indie rocker. That's the greatest (laughs) description
5: of someone I've ever heard
7: in my life. (laughs)
1: Emily's good with these descriptions. She is. Oh,
7: thank you. I appreciate I stole that from his press from oh, his okay. Up, <laughs> but like plagiarizing, th- great. Yeah, I know. Great, great quality. So, talk <laughs> about his
5: talk about his music. How did he get into it? What kind of music?
7: Um, well, it's 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 definitely, he's someone who, he uh, it was interesting because I asked him pretty, I always like to ask musicians, like, towards the end of the interview, like, what do you like to listen to? And his stuff was, like, all over the place. Like, he mentions the Velvet Underground, um, wow. and he mentioned, which I was like, what? That's cool. <laughs> um, and, uh, like, David Bowie, uh, and then Elvis Costello, which made more sense when I, I thought about his music a little bit more, and uh, um, they have... A lot of the songs and the albums have pretty lofty titles, like um, well, the name of his band is the Fearless Starlight Band. Mm. A lot of it's in tongue in tongue in cheek. It's it's got to be. It's great. It's hilarious that way. But um, it's uh, he works with um, OU media students to produce this music, and uh, he's been really prolific. I mean, he's already working on a uh, yet another. This will be his fourth release, I believe. Wow. Um, the working title for it is "Life Is But a Dream," which is like slightly less space rocky than some of his other things, and the music sounds a little less space rocky than some of the other stuff. But yeah,
1: so he uses all OU students. That's
7: yeah, for the mo- for the most cool. part, yeah. So yeah, yeah, overwhelmingly affiliated with OU.
5: Just nice. when you think a lawyer doesn't have any time outside, of, <laughs> they start a fearless starlight band.
7: Yeah, it's insane.
1: <laughs> and you went to his home to interview him? Yeah,
7: he has this really gorgeous historic home on the Ohio River, and I think, I was trying to like pry it out of him because I really wanted to quote about how like seeing the stars so clearly like influences music, but that definitely is not the case. Even though he does have a beautiful home and would be beautiful for stargazing, I'm sure, but he was very much just like that's, you know, whatever. Hmm. So, yeah, really, really, really cool um, house. We sat out on his uh, little back porch out overlooking the river. It was really gorgeous. Great. So you have a song for us? I absolutely do. This is uh, Down, which is his most recent effort, and he made, um, has been very kind to email me new MP3s every once in a while, and this one came right on the heels of the Nelsonville Music Festival, and I was pretty impressed by it.
2: Cool.
8: She's cold and she's warm, then they just revert to form. Turn it on, turn it off, all in stride, just shrug
0: it off. We've got this thing, I guess we're calling it love. There's little doubt that it comes from above, well, it all goes down, all you need to do is look around, you have to wonder now, connect all the dots you haven't been around it's really quite profound the way it sounds when it all goes
2: down
1: so from one uh athens county artist to another, another. poetry yeah,
7: yeah. and
1: uh carrie gunter seymour and she just won some, something quite big.
7: Yeah, yeah. She was uh, she won the National Federation of State Poetry Society's Blackberry Peach Spoken and Heard Award, which is quite a mouthful, but it's a big award. I mean, she got a $1,000 cash prize. She'll be um, doing a spoken word performance at their uh, conference in Fort Worth here on July 1st, and her work will be included in a uh, chapbook that will be available on Amazon, and also they're doing a, um, the press release is a little vague, but it seems pretty interesting. They're going to be doing some kind of, something with YouTube, some sort of video involving her work and some of the work of the other winners.
5: Interesting. So when did she start writing poetry?
7: Yeah, she started writing poetry in 2009 when her son was deployed in the Middle East, and she did it as a way um, just to, she's it's, She's always been an, a creative person, is what she told me in our interview, but... Um, uh, something about poetry itself was super cathartic for her during that time period. Um, a lot of her poems address like war and international conflict, but through this like hyper personal. Like lens, which is pretty cool. Interesting.
1: And, and so she's from Athens County, right? Yeah. From grew up, born and raised. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of her work speaks to sort of that Appalachian experience.
7: Yeah, she's she's very much um, all all of her poems really speak to that. I, I would say, I don't want to say all of them, but a good portion of them do. She does them um, in in persona, in character, and those are all uh, sort of voices from her own culture, which is really interesting.
1: So let's listen to one of them. This is Girls of Summer.
8: Our baptism was near at hand. The creeks brimming with spring rain. Yellow crocus poking up their heads with suspicion. We wiggled in our seats all through May. That summer, Nobs got her nickname. Being the first of us who, when Chin was put to chest, could barely see her toes. She flaunted her stardom floating on her back. We frittered our way to Labor Day, worrying nibs of straw between our teeth, vowing to never smoke or drink or carry on with men outside the church. To this day, I will swear, Wanda Sue Banks was our undoing. Her lanky self strutting into our lives, eyelashes thick with Maybelline, she popped her gum stole her mama's cigarettes, and we were drawn to her like flies to dog dew. She collected us. Like born-agains, we teased our hair, cold our eyelids, and turned up our hemlines with duct tape. She taught us the power of moodiness. We were fixin' to joyride in her daddy's fair lane the day our mothers grabbed us by the arm. Years later, I read about her in the newspaper and cried, ultra-lash mascara smudging my hanky and cheeks.
1: So she'll be performing those winning po- poems someplace.
7: Yeah, yeah, in Fort Worth, Texas, which is quite a drive from Athens. But she is. She's also the director of the Women of Appalachia Project, which is very, very big deal in this in this area. And she, um, in general, you know, I mean, a couple of days ago, I had a day off and I ran into her at Dairy Queen. So she's around. She's great. She's just a fantastic person. Good okay. to know.
1: Well. Time is running out because, Emily, you got a jet.
7: I got a jet. I got to go to Marietta. I got to talk to some Thesbians about their performance on the river.
1: Okay. Well, thanks for coming in. We appreciate it. Thanks for giving me some new music to listen to. Sure. We'll next time. We'll yeah, see you next time. Yeah, see you time. next
7: time. Thank you, guys. Okay, Bye.
3: that does it for this episode of 457SEO. Our thanks to Nicole Irwin of the Ohio Valley Resource for her story, Nuclear Option, Officials Hope Old Facility Can Fuel Growth, which you can read and hear at woub.org. Our thanks to Joel Bradburn with the Department of Energy for his time.
2: We also want to thank Ohio University's Stephanie Howe for joining us to give us an update on the Ports Future Project. And as always, We want to thank WOUB's arts and culture reporter, our comrade, Miss Emily Votaw. You can see and hear her work with the artists you heard in this episode at woub.org backslash culture.
1: 457 SEO is produced by us, the WOUB News Team, and recorded in the Telemix Studio where we're at right now. Our original music is produced by Nathan McGuire. Thank you so much. Adam Rich is the man behind the glass. Our fearless leader is Allison Hunter. And Aaron Payne makes the audio magic happen as our editor.
5: And you can find that audio magic for 457SEO on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and woub.org backslash listen, or search woub.org for hashtag 457SEO. If you feel so inclined, leave us a five star review as it helps other people find the podcast. Leave us a review while you're at it as long as it's constructive and let us know what you want to hear on future episodes. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Susan Tebbin.
3: I'm Matish Baidya. I'm Aaron Payne.
2: And I'm Allison Hunter.
3: Thanks. Bye. Bye.
2: I think we sounded too. Um, I think we were in some good at the-
3: Erwin of the Ohio Valley Resource for her story.
5: Hey, you messed up too. I did.
3: (laughs) Poe buddies (laughs) nerfed.